Thanks, here. Well, good morning. It is great to see you. Glad you're here. Welcome again to Christ Central. My name is Daniel, and I'm one of the pastors, and really glad you're here. Uh, I want to say special welcome if you're a first-time guest. I uh, hope you can feel connected and uh, get to know people here. Uh, we, we really do want you to feel welcome, and especially to you college students, as already been said, I realize uh, the semesters have begun, and we want college students here to feel welcome. Uh, so hopefully you stop by outside. We had bagels and a gift for you. If you didn't stop by, please stop by afterwards. Grab uh, a coffee mug if you want or some coffee and a bagel as you leave. Uh, we really want you to feel uh, welcomed here. Uh, we realize many of you are in campus ministries and we pray for campus ministries. We partner with campus ministries and want to fan the flame of the ministries and at the same time as a church come alongside you and care for you well in this season of your life. Uh, there's also another kind of demographic uh, here that, that is kind of maybe moving and transitioning into the area, and that's graduate students, residents, maybe you're 20 to 30 moving in, working, new to the area, and this is a unique season in your life as well, and, and so we want to say welcome to you, and we, we want to care well for you, and uh, so something that's happened this past week is we've added a part-time staff member to our church staff, uh, Charlie Dinsmore, uh, many of you know Charlie. Uh, he's been a member here for some time, but he is now coming on part-time to help us care well for the demographic, which is a large part of our church and a large part of our city. He will also be kind of our connections director, meaning he will help people kind of connect and take the next step into the life of our church, uh, wherever they might be kind of in, in our community. Uh, and while I'm kind of highlighting, introducing people, uh, would also want to introduce or highlight that we also brought Evan Marbury on as part-time staff. Uh, some, you know, some of you know Evan as well, has been a member here, him and Katrina and their daughter Joelle. Uh, Evan preached a number of weeks ago, but he is now part-time staff as a pastoral resident. And so we're super excited for Evan and for Charlie uh, to be uh, on, our, on our staff team, both huge gifts. So yeah, we can clap. So if you see them, welcome them. They've already been members of our church, but now, uh, now they have to put up with working with us. So sorry about that, Evan and, and Charlie. Uh, but it's, it's great to have them. We are beginning this morning a new series on the Lord's Prayer, uh, perhaps something familiar to many of you. I, I, I didn't become a Christian until high school, but I grew up, from the time I could speak, reciting the Lord's Prayer, something our family did. I went to a school in which we recited the Lord's Prayer every morning. I remember being in kindergarten, and my friends and I would race to see who could say the Lord's Prayer the fastest. Our Father, who art in heaven, it was a race, right? This prayer has become so familiar, so familiar that I believe we've become numb to its beauty and its power. That something so extraordinary and instructive has become too ordinary. The series we're entering this morning, it's a study on prayer, but if we think it is only to instruct us on words to say when we pray, we're missing the whole point. This is a prayer that teaches us how to live. If we get up here and we preach you know, a number of sermons on a familiar prayer, and it doesn't become something that each one of us carries deep within our hearts and within our souls, allowing it to truly impact the way we live, it's of no use. You know, if someone were to ask you, who's, who's a Christian? I think perhaps the best answer that you could give is that a Christian is none other than someone who has learned to pray and to live the Lord's Prayer. I realize that there are a number of you here that would say you're not a professing Christian. 
you're just here and you're asking questions around Christianity, and uh, we're really glad you're here, and we want you to feel welcome. But I would say this series is for you as well. And for one of the most influential religious leaders in human history, Jesus of Nazareth, was asked, how do I connect with God? And he gave the Lord's Prayer. This is a study for all of us. I have to give a warning before we jump in that someone once said to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. So to pray and to live the Lord's Prayer takes guts. Because when we take these words upon our lips and they're rooted and implanted in our hearts, we are asking for a revolution of our world and of our lives. So I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand as I read Matthew 6, verses 7 to 9. This is God's word to us this morning. And Jesus said, When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Isaiah, Isaiah 40, the Old Testament prophet says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Jesus, would you by your spirit, through the word given to us, speak to our minds and to our hearts? Would you transform us this morning? Would these words, Jesus, that you preached unto your disciples, that you gave to your disciples, that we seek to be, would they be just as fresh today as they were back then when you preached them? I pray that the Holy Spirit would press upon our spirits, that you would meet us where we are, and that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Speak to us, we pray, our Father who is in heaven. In your name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, I want to get straight to the point about this prayer that Jesus gives us. It has the power to heal our image of God. It has the power to heal our image of God. 17th century mathematician Blaise Pascal said that God made us in his image, and we've been making God into our image ever since. God made us in his image, but we've been making God into our image ever since. That every single one of us has an image of God that we've crafted. And we craft God into our liking based on our own experiences, our personal beliefs, our groundings about reality. Brennan Manning begins his book, Abba's Child, by referencing a short story of Flannery O'Connor called The Turkey. I want to read fairly lengthy excerpts of this story. So heads up, it's fairly lengthy. But as I do this, I want you to really pay attention to the thoughts the actions and the responses of the main character to understand how he views himself and how he views God. The main character is a little boy named Ruller. Ruller has a poor self-image because nothing he turns his hand to seems to work. And at night, he, in bed, overhears his parents analyzing him. Ruller's an unusual one, his father says. Why does he always play by himself? And his mother answers, how am I to know? One day in the woods, Ruller spots a wild and wounded turkey and sets off in hot pursuit. 
oh, if I could only catch it, he cries. And he will catch it, even if he has to run it out of the state. And he sees himself triumphantly marching through the front door of his house with the turkey slung over his shoulder and the whole family, family screaming, look at Ruller with that wild turkey. Ruller, where did you get that turkey? Oh, I caught it in the woods. Maybe you'd like me to catch you one sometime. But then a thought flashes across his mind. God will probably make me chase that dang turkey all afternoon for nothing. And he knows that he shouldn't feel this way about God, yet that's the way he feels. If that's the way he feels, can he help it? Ruller finally captures the turkey when it rolls over dead, and he hoists it onto his shoulders and begins the messianic march back into town. And he remembers the things that he thought before he caught the turkey. They were pretty bad, and he figures God stopped him before it was too late. Thank you, God, he says. Much obliged to you. You are mighty generous. Maybe getting the turkey was a sign, he thinks. Maybe God wants him to be a preacher. And he wants to do something for God, but he doesn't know what to do. He wishes he would see somebody begging so that he could give the beggar his dime. Well, suddenly he prays, Lord, send me a beggar. God's put the turkey here. Surely God will send a beggar. And he knows God will send him one because he's an unusual child. He interests God. An old beggar woman quickly approaches and he springs at the woman, here, here, thrusting his dime into her hand. And slowly his heart calms and he begins to feel a new feeling. A feeling like being happy and embarrassed at the same time. Ruller then notices a group of country boys shuffling behind him, and he turns around and he asks, y'all want to see this turkey? And they stare at him, where did you get that? I found it in the woods, I chased it dead. Well, let me see, one boy says. Ruller hands in the turkey, and the turkey's head flies into his face as the country boy slings it up in the air over his own shoulder and turns away. And the others turn, and they walk away. They're a quarter mile away before Ruller moves. And finally, they're so far away he can't see them anymore. And then he creeps home as it's getting dark. And Flannery O'Connor ends her story with these words, Ruller ran faster and faster, and as he turned up the road to his house, his heart was running as fast as his legs, and he was certain that something awful was tearing behind him with its arms rigid, and fingers ready to clutch. Brendan Manning says that in Ruller, many of us as Christians stand revealed, naked, and exposed. That our God, it seems, is one who graciously gives turkeys and suddenly takes them away. And when he gives them, it signals his interest in and pleasure with us. We feel close to God and we're spurred to generosity. And when he takes them away, it signals his displeasure and rejection. We feel cast off by God, that God is fickle, unpredictable, whimsical, that God builds us up only to let us down. He remembers our past sins, and he retaliates by snatching the turkeys of health or wealth, peace or children or success or joy. Here's what Flannery O'Connor and Brennan Manning, what I'm saying is that because of our own experiences growing up as children, our own present experiences, all of these things shape how we feel about ourselves and how we view life. And we then, each of us, project onto God an image that is more about us than it is about Him. 
that we have crafted and are crafting our own image of God. So Jesus gives us the Lord's Prayer to recraft, to heal our image of God so that how we live might be transformed. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount all summer long, and this prayer that Jesus gives in the, is in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. In, the, in this prayer and in the whole sermon, Jesus is not contrasting religious people and non-religious people. Rather, Jesus is contrasting religious people with Christians. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't compare those who pray with those who don't pray? He compares those who pray one way with those who pray another way. And he doesn't say if you pray, but when you pray. Same thing we saw in Timothy's passage he preached last week. Not if you give, but when you give. Not if you fast, but when you fast. Jesus is saying when you pray. Jesus is saying that all people approach God, all people do, in two different ways. One of ways, one of two ways. The Christian way or what Jesus calls the Gentile or pagan way. And by pagan, Jesus doesn't mean irreligious. Because even the most staunch atheist has opinions about how life is, how we are to live in this life, the way things really are, that everybody has beliefs and faith. And so what makes one prayer a Christian prayer and the other prayer a pagan prayer? Here's the crux of my sermon. It's all about how one approaches God and, and in what image they view and understand God. The Christian approaches and views God primarily as Father. Jesus says, when you pray, pray then like this, our Father. Jesus could have begun this prayer in so many ways. He could say, pray our King, pray our Lord, pray our Creator. But instead, he says, when you pray, pray our Father. And the word for Father is the Aramaic word Abba, which means Dad or Daddy dearest dad now we've got to realize how revolutionary this was because in all 39 books of the old testament god was referred to as father only 14 times and never in a common language like aramaic and never with a word like abba that means dearest dad no one in the history of prayer had ever dared talk to almighty god in such a familiar way but Jesus says, when you pray, pray, Abba, dearest dad. It is a term of deep affection and deep trust. Now, this doesn't always happen when I come home, but I came home on uh, Tuesday afternoon, pulled up into the driveway, and both my boys come outside in nothing but their underwear, hauling down the driveway for all the neighbors to hear and see, and they scream, Dada, Dada, and they gave me big old hugs. Abba, Abba, this deep affection, deep trust for our God. Now I realize that when I mention God as Father, it invokes all sorts of feelings in every one of us. Because one thing that we all have in common is that everybody here has a dad. And for some of you, there's great joy and comfort when you think about your dad. For some of you, there's great pain and hurt when you think about your dad. And for many of us, there's mixed emotions. So what emotions do you feel when you think about God as your Abba, as your dad? 
And how are you projecting onto God an image that's more about you and your own experiences, even your own experiences with your, with your dad, than it is about who he is in his fatherhood? I think a better way to get at our view of God is to ask how, are we, how we are living. Remember I said this prayer is not just words we're to say, but really drive at how we live. So the better question is, do you, do I live as Abba's child? Do we live like a child? See, Jesus is contrasting two people. Those who live like they're Abba's child and those who live like they don't have an Abba. Another way to say this, that there are those who live like there's the beloved child of the Father, and then there are those who live as spiritual orphans, believing and therefore living as though they, they have no heavenly Father. So I want to take some time, I want to tease out, the difference between living as Abba's child and living with a spiritual orphan mindset. The main difference between living as a spiritual orphan versus God's beloved child is whether or not you like the Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich or Popeye's chicken sandwich. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Had to get y'all to wake back up and get in. Been debated all week. The main difference between the two is the reason you believe you're heard in your prayers. When you believe that God hears you based on how you're living or based on what you're saying, it reveals what you believe about God. Look at verse 7. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases. Right? Don't think your many words are going to make the Father listen. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm good. I've been around people who kind of babble in prayer, like just keep talking and talking. I'm good. My prayer life's pretty minimal. I'm not, I'm not one of those people. But that's not what Jesus is driving at. He's driving at the, the truth that the orphan, the spiritual orphan, prays to God, thinking God listens because of what one does. That our performance, our merit, our record, these are the things that cause God to listen and be pleased with us. I watched a few weeks ago the documentary Free Solo. Many of you have seen it documentary about Alex Honnold, the first rock climber to ever climb the rock face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park, 3,200 feet of vertical rock face with no ropes, nobody belaying him. It was crazy to watch him free solo this thing. Now, the documentary, if you've seen it, it gives a little bit of background on Alex's life. His father was emotionally distant because they didn't know what they would know now if his father was still alive, that his father would be diagnosed with Asperger's. Because of his Asperger's, his father was emotionally unavailable most of Alex's life. And Alex's mother was a French teacher who drove and pushed Alex, always wanted him to perform and to be better. And Alex says in the documentary, he says, one of the reasons he free climbs is because to do it, one has to be perfect. One mistake and you're dead. And Alex said, when he is perfect, that's when he feels the most alive. That's when he feels the most alive. Now, I understand the drive to perform and to work. I understand the desire to be perfect. I will never free solo. I'm not that driven. But I grew up thinking that I needed to be this way, that I had to earn love, I had to work for it. And it was easy and still is easy for me to view God as one who thinks the same way, that his love is contingent upon my own performance, upon earning and working that he's pleased with me when I do well. 
And so let me just remind myself and tell you that the urge or the feeling that you have to work for or earn God's love, it's the mindset of a spiritual orphan, not that of Abba's child. And here's one way you know you view yourself this way, you, you view God this way. When you sin, when you sin, be it looking at pornography, be it when you blow up on your child, be it you haven't spent time with God in a long time in prayer or in the Word, and you're filled with guilt and shame, whatever you, you're filled with guilt and shame, do you pull away from God? You pull away and think you're unworthy to come before God. Are you embarrassed to meet with Him? Are you embarrassed to come on a Sunday morning thinking you don't belong? Are you embarrassed to come to this meal that we partake of every week? See, a child comes to God and prays to God because they know that God will always love them, especially when they mess up. You know, there are a lot of babies being born in Christ Central. There really have been a lot of babies being born in Christ Central since we started a number of years ago. Uh, God's blessed us with children, but someone told me the other day, that from now to December, we've got 14 children being born, uh, if not more than that. And the Masons are adding to that. We're a part of that, if you didn't know. Uh, yes. <laughs> Baby number three coming in mid-December, uh, and it's another boy. Uh, so pl please pray for us. Pray for me. My wife is patient. I, uh, pray, for, pray for us. We're excited uh, about a house full of boys. Uh, but when somebody has a newborn baby, there's, there is immediate love and acceptance of that child. I've experienced it twice. There's nothing that the child's ever done to be loved. They're just loved. And when you introduce a newborn to another person, the parent never says, here is my child who's going to be a lawyer. Here's my child who's going to be a businesswoman or a businessman. No, the love of the child, it's deep, it's rich, and it's free. It's not contingent upon what the child has done or will ever do. Abba's child knows that the face of the father never turns away, that the arms of the father are never closed, they're never pushing us away, they're always open and they're ready to embrace us. Let me tease this out a little bit more. Spiritual orphans tend to worry a lot, deeply concerned over their daily needs like relationships or health or career or money child has worries but they take their worries to their father and they know that the father longs to hear from them spiritual orphan relies on themselves most of the time thinking they can manage life but a child relies less and less on themselves and learns more and more that apart from God we can do nothing spiritual orphan is concerned about building their own record being noticed comparing themselves against others they're very competitive a child doesn't need to keep score. They're done with keeping score. They know that their failure doesn't define them, and especially their success does not define them. Confidence is in Jesus and in his record given to them. Now here's one really convicting for me. They're all convicting for me. But a spiritual orphan cannot receive criticism, and they get very defensive when they're criticized, crushed if they're not succeeding. But a child is able to fail and is open to criticism and can learn from the truth because they're resting in Christ's perfection. A spiritual orphan often feels misunderstood and abandoned. The child knows that God's always with me and he cares deeply. A spiritual orphan is often self-absorbed 
even thinking that their own religious life is about them, but a child laughs often and laughs at themselves often. Let me drive this further into our prayer lives, how we pray. Spiritual orphans pray and live by editing their feelings. They make stereotype responses to life situations. God's going to work it out. Yeah, you've all heard them. We've all given them the stereotype responses. They carefully repress emotion. While a child is aware of their feelings, they're uninhibited in their expression, a child spontaneously expresses emotion. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's, that's just the difference between, like, an introvert and an extrovert. And those of you that are really into this thing called the Enneagram are thinking, well, that, that's just the difference between, like, a 1, a 3, a 7, and a 9. <laughs> no. This is not a question of introversion versus extroversion. This isn't about someone who's expressive versus someone who's subdued. Emotions are neither good nor bad. They are simply the truth of what's going on in our insides. And a child prays like the psalmist pray. Where are you, O God? Have you abandoned me? I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm hurt. I'm ashamed. There's great honesty and freedom that the child has because they know Abba's always there with a love that will always remain. A child doesn't pray and live Christian nice. We've all maybe lived it or been around it. Christian nice. (laughs) A child is raw and real and honest and free because they're secure in the love of the Father. And to ignore and repress and dismiss feeling is to fail to listen to the stirring of the Holy Spirit within our emotional life. You see, prayer can be summarized this way. It's taking our whole selves, our emotions, our circumstances, our thoughts, into the presence of our Father, and we allow Him to meet us in His love. Do you believe God loves you this morning? Not like the biblically and theologically, yes, God loves me, but let me ask it a different way. Do you really believe God likes you, that God's fond of you. He delights in you. In John chapter 1, verse 12, John writes, So all who believed in Jesus and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 8, Paul writes, We've not received a spirit of fear, but by faith in Jesus, we received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Daddy. You see, in Christ, by faith in Jesus, we are adopted into the family of God, and we have a relationship with God as Abba. And because Christ lived a perfect life, has a perfect record, we need not believe that God loves us or hears us because of what we do. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, we know that God doesn't just love us on a whim, but that Jesus entered the darkest of places, the depth of brokenness, and died on a cross. By that, it means God loves us in our darkest places. The only place Jesus doesn't refer, one of the only places that Jesus doesn't refer to as God as his Father in the Gospels, is when Jesus is hanging on the cross. When he's on the cross, that's when he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Because in that moment, Jesus lost relationship with his Father. 
He was abandoned so that when you are in pain or you feel abandoned, you can know God is always with you. And Christ rose victoriously from the grave so that we can know that our Father is working through the pain and the brokenness of this world, and He will redeem it. When we have our image of God recrafted into an image of God as a loving and good Father, it lifts our eyes always upward to be honest about ourselves, to be honest in the presence of Him, to be secure in His love towards us, and it always takes our eyes horizontally as John Worsham shared earlier about city groups. You see how Jesus teaches us to pray? We pray our Father. Not just my Father, but we pray our Father. We're not intended to live this Christian life alone and isolated. But Abba's child lives and loves others with the same type of love they've received in Jesus. Jesus always had his eyes on his Father in heaven. And he always had his eyes open to the people around him. Jesus loved the drunkard and the prostitute and the tax collector. Jesus loved to stop for people who had questions, who had longings and desires. Jesus was quick to listen and slow to speak. Jesus never wagged his finger at others, but he always sought to listen and understand the heart. See, we pray our Father, and as Abba's children, we then love people that God places around us. People that are different than us, not like us. It's easy to love people that are like us, but to love people who dress different, smell different, think different, have different interests, and dare I say we love people who hold different political opinions and views. We love with the love we receive. Do you see how revolutionary this prayer is? How it changes our lives if they're just not words we say, but they really take root in our heart. Let me close by saying that the love of God as Abba is not some sentimental love. He is our Father in heaven. He is in heaven, meaning he holds all the power. He's always present, and he will be true to everything he said he would do. And Muslims, they say, we believe we can't talk to God as Father. He's too great for us to approach him as a father. And Christians believe that the God of the Bible is also great. He is king in heaven, and he holds all power, but we are his children, and he is our father. Tim Keller says, think about this. Who is the only one who can wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water? His child. See, what would be demanding and rude and audacious for anyone else is normal for a child. William Barclay, a scholar, told the story of an emperor riding through Rome at the head of his legions, and his son was excited to see his father, the emperor, and so he buried through the crowd and under the legs of a guard in order to run up into his father's chariot, and the guard scooped him up and said, don't you know whose chariot that is? That's the emperor. And the boy replied, he may be your emperor, but he's my father. Do you share the confidence of the emperor's son? That the one we see far away and lifted up in heaven and we tremble in fear before is also our father, our Abba. There is no other faith that tells you to approach Almighty God this way. 
thank God he's not the God of our own making, but he is our Father in heaven. And through faith in Christ, we are adopted and secured as daughters and sons. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would help anybody in here that thinks they're too bad to be loved by you. They've done something too great to to not listen to that lie. For anybody in here that actually thinks they're pretty good and they smell good and they please you from what they do and how they live, bring repentance, deep repentance that we might know that your love to us is rich and it's free because of what Christ has done and that we are your children, sons and daughters, secured. So help us to live like it, not just say it. Wake, awake our hearts and souls to this truth, God, that by faith in Christ, we become children of our Father in heaven. So in his name we pray. Amen.